are listening to the North Carolina Food and Beverage Podcast. Thank you for downloading and subscribing. Coming to you virtually live from high atop the historic Raleigh building in beautiful downtown Raleigh. The NCF&B takes the listener behind the scenes to tell the stories of the people that contribute to the creation of the food and beverage community of North Carolina. Our featured spirit of the week is Doc Porter's Distillery of Charlotte. Every drop of Doc Porter's vodka, gin, and bourbon is made from scratch using locally sourced grains from Marshville and Asheville, North Carolina. Check them out online at docporters.com and at Doc Porter's Distillery and on Instagram at Doc Porter's. Brought to you by Key City Spirits, brand ambassadors providing North Carolina distilleries with marketing, design, and social media services. KeyCitySpirits.com. And now, the misfits in the dish pit, the faces of the front. They are Max Trujillo and Matthew Weiss. Hello, and thank you for listening to the North Carolina Food and Beverage Podcast. I am your co-host, Max Trujillo. And I am your co-host, Matthew Weiss. And today we have a follow-up episode. For those of you that listened to the Joyce Farms episode, you might have uh, started to get your get perked up on the end of that episode when we started talking about regenerative farming and agriculture. And when we were done with that episode, Mr. Ron Joyce, who's here in studio, say hello, Ron. Hello. He said to us, hey, you know, if you guys really want to get deep into this, Dr. Alan Williams is going to be in town in a couple of weeks, and he might want to come by the studio. And we said, yes. And <laughs> Just so, like that. Yeah. yeah. And so the guru of regenerative farming, say that three times fast, is here with us today. Welcome, Dr. Alan Williams. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. So I don't even know where we where we jump in here, but maybe, you know, um, a lot of our listeners, can you just give a little 101 or overall encompassing definition of what you do and what regenerative farming and agriculture means? I'd be glad to. So my journey or story really starts, I grew up on my family's farm in South Carolina, They've been there since 1840, and the reason I bring that up is because I represent the sixth generation. And so many of the farms today are, are facing severe economic trouble, and we're seeing a, a slow but sure death of, of a lot of these family farms. So that heritage is very important to me, and that's one of the reasons that I do what I do today is to try to bring back that heritage and help to restore and revitalize our rural economies, which used to be so important to the entire economy of the U.S. So I am a Clemson graduate uh, and uh, graduated in animal science and got a master's there and went to LSU and, and got a Ph.D. Ended up 15 years in academia. So here I was doing research and in, uh, in, in agriculture and what I slowly discovered was that the vast majority of what we were doing was what I termed today putting Band-Aids on a gushing wound. We were never really solving yeah. the ultimate problems, the real problems, the root cause of, of the issues that we were facing in, in agriculture and with our food and with our national health. And that started my journey. And so after 15 years in agriculture, and here I was, I was a, a tenured full professor, and most people were telling me that, you know, if you leave now, you're an absolute idiot. You're a fool. You've got tenure. 
guaranteed paycheck, the whole <laughs> bit. And but I made the decision to leave. And uh, my wife and I at that time, ha- our youngest son had just been born, so we had a newborn in the chi- in the household. And <laughs> I know what that's like. <laughs> yes, you you do, you do. Yes. And we still made the decision to take this leap and and to leave that comfortable world that I that I was living in. That was back in the year 2000, and what we did at that point was just launched full bore. Uh, we were sort of all in. You know, it was either do it or don't do it, so we were all in. And we launched full bore into regenerative this regenerative path, and that's what we've been doing ever since. So we do a number of things. Of course, I'm working heavily with Joyce Farms. Uh, we do a lot of consulting both here in the U.S. and many other countries around the world working with farmers and ranchers and food companies and so forth. but uh, And we are farmers and ranchers ourselves, so we practice what we preach. You still have your family's farm that you also farm well, today? Well, my, my family still operates that farm in South Carolina, but I farm independently in Mississippi and Alabama. Okay. Right. Uh, so that journey has led us to where we are today. So I've actually been out of academia about 20 years now, and – we have discovered that we can do things so much better than than what we thought. You know, we, we started down this, basically after World War II, we started down this, what I'll call very conventional or path in agriculture where we're focusing on monoculture production and commodities. And what we've noticed over those intervening decades is that that led us to severely degrade our soils it has led us to have foods that are far less nutrient-dense than what our, our forefathers experienced. Let me uh, yeah. exp- just in plain speak, what you're saying <clears throat> is yeah. like we've been overusing uh, to, or let's say overusing one part of land or a farm to just produce one item yeah. for so many years that it, it's basically ruined the land and even possibly the the whole ecology around it. And so regenerative agriculture is is different than that in the fact that it brings in a full 360 degree view of of all of the life that that it exists to make the soil better to make the food better to make our lives better that's essentially what you're you're trying to accomplish now yeah it is what we found was that with with what we call monoculture agriculture the the concept or the thought that we can only produce one thing on, on a given acre on any given year, uh, has actually led us to just completely destroying a lot of our ecosystems. Mm. And by reintroducing diversity into what we do on our farms and ranches, and that diversity comes in the forms of all life. So we start, regenerative agriculture really starts beneath the soil surface. There should be in healthy soil far more life beneath the soil surface than there is above the soil surface because we're talking literally trillions of microbes that should be living and existing and doing their work underneath the soil surface. And just to give you a perspective on that, for every acre of soil, if we have thriving microbial health and populations – that the weight of those trillions of microbes is going to equal the weight of three to four elephants. 
in every acre of soil. Oh. So that's the type of life that we should be experiencing. And, what, and we call that the foundation. Mm-hmm. So when we start with building the foundation first, meaning building our soil health first, then everything else in the entire food web starts to regenerate. Yeah. I want to understand that from even even a larger <clears throat> perspective and almost pinpoint a timeline because you said after yep. World War II. So essentially – I feel like this knowledge, it even though you're a PhD and not to undermine it in any way, it's somewhat uh, under. We we, we kind of had an, a knowledge of that right way way back when. I mean, when farmers started, there was a great respect to the land, and I mean, going back to when civilization started, uh, and and only I guess maybe you maybe you can tell me i'm sort of answering my own questions but what happens after world war 2 because we know how to fight a war and because we know how to build weapons i guess we take that approach to the to the land and we start to see how we can become hyper efficient with it is that is that what happens or is it before that because I, well first answer this before that we did have a respect for the land right and we kind of had a knowledge that underneath the soil needs to be healthy before anything no well with one exception though Plowing went back way before World War II. So plowing is one of the things that has to be eliminated with regenerative. Okay. So plowing goes back to biblical times. But at the time, we didn't know. We thought plowing was a good thing. Gotcha. Meaning just like tilling the soil, like like unearthing everything, moving it all around, kind of breaking it up. It seemed like, I guess the thought process, simply put, was just let's make this soil – uh, soft and pliable, so that these little seedlings can can grow out. And like, I guess we we were babying our seeds too much to where we should say, no, let them struggle a little bit to 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 grow deeper and get down. Like like you want a stronger seed. It's it's the way we talk about it in wine, wine right? Yeah. Which is maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit right now, but it, it made me think about this uh, because Matt and I are really into wine a lot, and we've studied a lot about wine. In the idea of taking a uh, agriculture and one, say, one acre of land, let's just say, in Burgundy, we've been planting Pinot Noir for thousands of years, mm-hmm. and it's and it's just and it's just Pinot Noir. We didn't like also plant some potatoes in the middle of a season or throw in some violets or something. I mean, there are some some ideas. So, how is it that Pinot Noir in Burgundy thrives? so well and that the the wine that i'm drinking today is just as amazing as the wine that i was drinking 100 years ago that kind of battles the idea of regenerative agriculture a little bit right but i don't know if you have an answer for me on this well what i can clearly tell you in that regard and 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 we 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 are working with with some vineyards as well as many orchards uh, around the world and and what i can clearly tell you is that that wine can actually be even better. Yeah. And and mm. when see so your comparison point is really pretty narrow. Okay? When you're talking about okay, the wine you're drinking today is just as good as a wine that was produced a hundred years ago, that's still a very narrow window in, in the scheme of things. And the truth of the matter is is that a hundred years ago that soil had already been degraded. Uh, now it it's in a even further degraded state today. And what we find is that when we can introduce practices that reinvigorate that soil, that rebuild that soil biology and microbiology, all of that life that should thrive in the soil, then it doesn't matter what type of food or drink 
you're producing from that soil, it is going to have far greater complexity of flavor as well as a far better nutritional profile. Yeah, and in fact, I mean, even in Burgundy, they I don't know how long this goes back, but you're seeing it more today as we get away from the quote-unquote conventional farming that people are using cover crops and other things in the vineyard to help create that yeah. biodiversity. So I think that helps. But 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 just taking it back for a second to the World War II uh, timeline, and so am I correct in saying that then we wanted to hyper-efficiency and mechanize everything, and that's what started to degenerate our farms? Well, the, the degeneration started back in Europe even well before that with the plowing and other practices. Okay. Uh, because most – a lot of people left Europe and moved here because of famine, and they had famine because the soil was already degenerated. So mm-hmm. the problem started well before World War II. I keep bringing up World War II because that's when we sort of moved into the industrial phase of agriculture right. using synthetic fertilizers and chemicals, insecticides and pesticides. So that was a another de- degrading practice that was added to centuries of degraded practices. Sure. But like compounding it so it's happening even faster because we're doing so much more at one time. Yeah, we it, it's a catalyst, right? So we accelerated the process. And, and so – Ron's exactly correct. If if you go back through many civilizations that have existed in the world, even thousands of years, there have been civilizations that have been basically farming themselves out of existence hmm. because of their poor use, the, the poor decisions that, that they made in the way that they farmed the soil. And so those civilizations either had to move on or they ceased to exist. So we have this long history, but yet at the same time, we also, in the history of the world, have this long history of people that have known how to treat the soil well and how to farm in synchrony with the with nature around them, with the ecosystem that surrounds them. And so what we're doing today in regenerative agriculture, I often call it so old that it's new. Yeah. So so you're absolutely right in in the allegation that okay, you know, this is not really some brand-new, highly technological process that we're doing here. No, no. Now, we can take modern technologies and marry them to those very old principles and make much greater progress, right? Right. But let's take a, a, a very small snapshot of U.S. history. Yeah. So before World War One, about a decade before – or World War II, excuse me, about a decade before World War II, what did we have happen in this country? The Dust Bowl. Yeah, the Dust right? Bowl, yeah. In the 1930s. And to put that into perspective, guys, the Dust Bowl occurred only about 50 years after all of the homesteading started to occur in earnest in the Midwest – in Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, Texas. What were those guys using? When they hit the prairie there, what were they plowing the prairie with? It was single tree plows pulled by an oxen, a mule, mm-hmm. horse teams, whatever. So if we think about the magnitude of that, that the Dust Bowl was created by agriculture, and it was created in less than 50 years mm. of agriculture without the chemicals, without the synthetic fertilizers, without the mechanized equipment that we have today. That's crazy. Well, you had yeah. this 
And, no. and how much less people there were even impacting the land. Right. Exactly. Then. We had basically virgin land that had never been Never planted. been plowed. Yeah, exactly. never plow, plowed at all. Trees hadn't been ripped up. You hadn't really – it had been an untouched environment. And that's – that is a metaphor for essentially what the whole world is dealing with right now, and we're still trying to figure out if if we're if the scientists are right or if politicians want to say that climate change and all this is even real. But it's pretty evident that the humans do have an impact on what is happening to our our environment, our world, and this is that right there. Case in point is kind of proof. Well, well, Dr. Williams has a phrase that I like, and I think it kind of puts things into perspective, called cascading effect. Yeah. So when you put more than one thing, more than one negative action yeah. together with other negative actions, then you get a cascading effect. And Yeah, there's a and, – and let's pick up on what you just said, but there, there is a principle that, uh, that is called the principle of compounding. And basically, in, in short order, what that principle means is that when you're dealing with nature, like we do with farming and ranching and growing our food that everybody eats, then there are no singular effects. Everything that we do, every decision that we make as a farmer or rancher, every if I decide to apply a synthetic fertilizer or a chemical or I decide to take a 400-horsepower tractor and, and plow my land – I have just created a series of compounding and cascading effects. And the other thing about this principle is those effects are never neutral. They're either negative or positive. And what we can do is by the way that we practice our farming, we can, in essence, determine whether we're producing positive or negative compounding and cascading effects. So if we pick up on this deal from the, the Dust Bowl, now, in today's, and, and to put this into even clearer perspective, in today's certification terminology, everybody is familiar with organic certif- certified food, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So every one of those farmers in that time was farming what is considered organically today. Right. So the Dust Bowl was created through, quote, organic, organic farming. farming. Right. So... Organic in and of itself is not the solution either, and and that's my point. We have to be regenerative. Mm-hmm. If we're not regenerative, then even farming organic, which just basically means we're farming sans chemicals, right, without the chemicals. So let, let's jump forward another decade to World War II and what happened there to soar, sort of really – step on the gas pedal, so to speak, with this degradation of our soil and our ecosystems is that a lot of companies that were busy developing chemicals for the Department of Defense during World War II, for instance, nitrogen for making bombs, Mm -hmm. phosphates, again, for making bombs, and then all of the mechanized equipment and perfecting that mechanized equipment. Those companies had to figure out a way to transition themselves and make a living as a company after the war was over. (laughs) And so the vast majority of them shifted over into agriculture. Hmm. And so all of these chemicals, the nitrogen, the phosphates, and 
all of the herbicides that were used for jungle warfare and those types of things to defoliate became very common use items. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So yes. we're saying you created and, a weapon to kill us, now use that technology to feed us. And that is exactly what has happened because at at the time and even at the present, you know, what, what has been the mantra around the world? Well, we've got an exploding global population, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to feed the world, feed the world. And that's what every farmer hears consistently, and that's what all the major agribusiness corporations are constantly talking about is we've got to have all of this. We've got to have the chemicals and we've got to have the synthetic fertilizers and we've got to have the biotechnology and all of this heavy mechanization because guys, we've got to get busy feeding the world. And what we've discovered is that if we continue down that path, rather than feeding the world, what we're actually doing is we are inviting global catastrophe. Mm -hmm because of the steady degradation of our soils and getting back to what you said about the climate, we have impacted the climate. And the major impact on the climate is that in today's agriculture, not just in the U.S. and North America, but globally, because we have basically Americanized agriculture all over the world and gone to synthetics, chemicals, and truly giant equipment – See, the only real difference between what we can do today and what those farmers that created the first Dust Bowl were doing is that because we have three, four, 500 horsepower tractors and equipment that is 50 foot, 100 foot or more. Oh, they look like they're massive. Right. I mean, we can rip up a whole lot more acres than those guys plowing behind those mules could. And if plowing is bad... Compare that to a single tree plow behind a, an animal. <laughs> right. right. Well, well, go ahead. I, so, okay, first and foremost, if you guys know this and, and you're, you're not uh, soft-spoken, you, you're, you're, you're letting people know about this, why are people still plowing? It, it, and I'm not even talking about the big yeah. uh, commercial ranches and stuff like that. I'm talking about independent farmers. Alan jokes that he calls this recreational farming. Because I'm a farmer, my family's always done that. It's spring, and I have a tractor. Recreational plowing <laughs> yeah. is yeah. what I call it. And uh, the, the reason, what you have to realize, and having grown up you know, in a farming family and having that heritage, that tradition, is that farmers and ranchers are traditionalists. Mm. And it's very, very hard to get them to change. And... The other thing that you have to realize is that in farming and ranching, even though we'll talk about ourselves as these proud, fierce independents that nobody tells us what to do, the fact is nothing can be further from the truth. We, we are probably, out of almost any vocation out there, farmers and ranchers are the most subject to peer pressure. I... I, I Basically, compare it to peer pressure that you experience as an elementary school kid. Right. Uh, and, and so farmers and ranchers in the U.S. are very, very afraid of doing something that's different because they're afraid of what their neighbors are going to say. They're afraid of what even their own family members are going to say, and they don't want to be talked about down in the local diner. Well, and they're also risk-averse, I think. Yes. and. 
Uh, farmers, you have to remember, for the last several decades now, the income from the farmer has gone down. And most farmers are struggling, and that's one of the problems. We've got to keep farmers in business, and that's had two effects. We're losing farmers, but because there's no opportunity perceived there, we're not bringing young people into farming. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the other exciting things about regenerative. It gives people hope that they can make money. But if you're risk-averse and you're already almost at the point of losing the family farm that's been in your family for generations – you really don't want to take a chance it's going to be the final blow. So part of it is we've got to convince farmers to take this leap. And Alan's seen it, and I know from his work and our own experience, a lot of times a farmer has this, – this is often his last chance. A farmer gets to the point where they say literally, okay, I'm going to try it because i got nothing to lose. Right. And it's a shame they have to get to that point. Because your farm has degenerated right. so much. So I want to get more into this idea of being risk-averse and what are some of the practices that you employ. Yeah. Uh, before we do that, though, if you want to be risk-averse in your business, you should talk to our sponsors, Forest Firm. We'll take a quick little break, and we'll be right back. Everybody has legal questions, especially in the food and beverage industry. So that's why we've provided the Forest Firm to help us out. And if you follow us on Instagram at NCFB Pod, we'll put out a post weekly from Forest Firm and ask a question. It might be the question that we ask on the show. Today, we have an attorney from the Forest Firm, Kelly Ovius, who specializes in trademark law. So hello, Kelly. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Fantastic. Well, before we even turn these mics on, we started talking about one of the most important things about businesses when you're getting one started, naming the business. That is uh, a question that so many people get themselves wrapped in. For one, how important is the name to a business? Well, to me as a trademark attorney, of course, I'm a little biased, but I think it's very important. I mean, that's, that is your brand. That is how you differentiate yourself from the crowd. If you are in the naming process what would be some of the simple steps that you would advise someone just right off the bat so you don't waste too much time? Well, what I always advise my clients is try not to fall in love with a name before you do some trademark due diligence. Ideally, talk to a trademark attorney. I, but I know a lot of people don't want to spend that money. But there are things you can do on your own. Search the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office records do some keyword searching on search engines because I have seen it many, many times that a client has run down the road with a name that they just love. And they come to find out there's somebody somewhere else who came up with the same name or a really similar name for the same or a similar business. And, and that's problematic from a trademark standpoint. So how does it happen, being that we're in North Carolina, does it differ from state to state? Like if I wanted to have Tony's Taco Tubes uh, on Tuesday here in North Carolina, previous episode, but there's also a Tony's Taco Tubes in Arizona. Does that matter or how does that affect the business? I will use the trademark attorney or any attorney's favorite phrase. It depends. Um, under what's known as the common law of trademarks, those two businesses can coexist in their geographic areas because common law rights just extend to the localities that you serve. So if you're in Arizona and I'm in North Carolina and we're not, you know, 
we're not expanding, we are where we are, mm -hmm. we could coexist forever and it's fine. But let's say I'm opening my business in North Carolina, but you in Arizona have a federal trademark registration. Mm. Your federal trademark registration gives you priority throughout the United States. So if you already went and you got that registration and I'm starting up in North Carolina, even if you're not physically in North Carolina, it's still problematic for me because federal registration gives you rights throughout the country. That's great to know. Thank you so much. To learn more about The Forest Firm and what they can do for you, click the link in our show notes or visit forestfirm.com backslash NCFB to request a free consultation for your business. You can also reach them at 877-669-1455. Forest Firm, business attorneys across North Carolina. Yeah, and we're back. So we were talking about a farm being so lacking of substance and having uh, degenerated so much that they're they're willing to try anything. What are some of the examples of people that have come to you? Maybe that's one. What are some of the other uh, you know examples where people have reached out to you and said, "Can you help me?" Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I guess let me let me first qualify that before I answer that specific question by saying this. I uh, I want everybody to understand the real state of farming in, in the U.S. today and why these guys are struggling so much. You know, it, again, it started with the degradation of the soil and, and loss of productivity and those types of things. But if we look at where most farmers are today, there there's two things that really stand out. First is that we are experiencing farm bankruptcy filings at a record pace. The first four months of this year, we have seen an incredible rise in farm bankruptcy filings. Likewise, if we look at suicide rates of any vocation, farming and ranching has one of the highest rates of suicide. Wow. I was and, unaware. And, and think, now let's think about that, guys. You know, farming and ranching should be a vocation that has one of the highest levels of contentment yeah. of anything that you do, and and it, it's not right now. And that's because our farmers and ranchers are carrying such a heavy, heavy debt load just to keep farming and ranching and to keep their operations that, that it is a huge burden on them. Uh, for instance, corn is one of the major crops grown in the U.S. every year. In 2018, the average corn farmer produced 190 bushels of corn per acre. That was a record national yield. We had never, ever reached that kind of national average corn yield before. So you would think, wow, we hit record yields. Farmers should just be rolling in the yeah. dough, right? Yeah. I mean, everything should be fantastic. They can pay off these loans. But in spite of that record yield, the average corn farmer last year lost $63 an acre. Now, that that's aside from the federal crop insurance subsidy and that type of thing, right? But when you look at real cost, the average corn farmer ended up losing $63 an acre. Why is that? Because supply was so abundant? It drove down the price? It, it's a combination of things. First of all, they're, they're spending more than it takes to you know, then 
them what they can get for the crop, right? Okay. So their input costs are higher than the value of the crop. And secondly, yes, if you over law of supply and demand, right? If you overproduce anything, then the value of that crop. So, my point that I'm making is that farmers have been taught for decades that increased yields are what is going to make us money and make us profitable. And what we're discovering is that is absolutely false, and mm. it's driving more and more farmers into debt. So, that story is a microcosm of why farmers and ranchers are now coming to us and looking for help because they now have discovered that, first of all, we can't continue to operate under this level of debt, that this is killing us. And then secondly, we're not, as Ron alluded to, we're not going to be able to pass this farm along to the next generation because they can't make money. Right. They can't be profitable. You know, the problem is it seems like it's like um, we, don't put a, we don't put a traffic light up until someone gets run over. Mm-hmm. Yes. We do not do a good job of preventative measure, measures for anything in our society because it's not sexy to do that. And we've had people on the show before, like Hungry Harvest or uh, Kim Reed, whose birthday it is today, uh, of the PCG talking about the abundance of food and the inequality of the price of food where we really do have enough food to to feed the world we just are not putting it in the right in the right scope like uh, or at least I should maybe I can't say the world but in the United States we are destroying food by the by the truckloads all the time yet we have hungry children we have hungry adults we have people that are not getting access to the food but it sounds like it's 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 to continue the economic structure of these businesses that were created back when there was a need for whatever they were doing. But things change, and, and we have to evolve, so we have to move with it. We have to be fluid, but we're not. We're still forcing the issue of growing so much more corn when we really don't need it. We need to, you know, we're, and then we're feeding it to the, to the animals that shouldn't be eating that food to begin with because it's not making them tasty for what we want. That's a point I know Ron shares. Uh, to to get into that point about flavor, we'll get to that in a, in a quick moment. But it just is it going to take a horrible, huge problem uh, that is so overwhelmingly you know you know everywhere that 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 will turn us into fixing things like like the bank uh, the bank crisis we had. We lost all of our money, so we said, okay, we can't do it this way anymore. We can't just give loans out to everybody. The car companies. Uh, you know, we're failing because all the country, other countries were doing a better job. So we had to put in rules to change how cars were made so that economically we could actually exist. These companies could still exist. I just don't see what is it? We're just going to have to have like mass deaths over, over a course of time for us to understand. I just don't see how we actually will get to the point where we have to take action. Well, and that, that's a large reason for why we do things like we're doing here today. You know, we have to educate not just the farmer, farming and ranching community, but we have to educate the consumer population. And, you know, in today's world, in the U.S., farmers and ranchers only make up about 1.5% of the total population. So we've got more than 98% of the total population that's not actively involved in agriculture, but, of course, they eat every single day. 
And so we've got to reach that consumer population as well with this with this message because they're the ones that can help really drive this by demanding good food produced regeneratively. Yeah. You know, they can really help change the equation much faster than the farmers and ranchers themselves can change the this equation. So let, let let's address that. So first of all, we can absolutely change the climate for the better by far if we farm regeneratively and here's why because in today's monoculture farming environment and with all the tillage that we do hundreds of millions of acres in North America alone every year only have a living plant in the soil with living roots in that soil and plants that are photosynthesizing and respiring and all of that they only have living roots in the ground for less than a third of the year and so for two-thirds or more of the year this land hundreds of millions of acres is left bare and guys do you know how hot soil can heat up to when it's left bare in the summertime 140 plus degrees that kills all the life in that soil Mm. and that also kills all of the life above the soil that relies on that life in the soil so there's nothing there so we have a non-functional ecosystem for two-thirds of the year across hundreds of millions of acres and what's happening there i have a a good friend of mine that is a meteorologist, he, he's a Ph.D. in meteorology with the National Weather Service, but he tells me, we talk, we talk about these types of things all the time, and he tells me very bluntly that moisture breeds moisture and drought breeds drought. So if we create conditions where we dry out and heat up our soil, which is exactly what we're doing with our modern farming practices, then we are creating desertification. We are creating drought conditions. And if you look at what's happening in North America, every year the desertification is creeping eastward more and more every single year. Hmm. So that's what we're experiencing. If we can put living roots in the ground year-round and plant complex cover crops in between our monoculture cash crops and add livestock back to the equation grazing those cover crops, we can completely reverse the climate issues. We don't need a multi-trillion dollar solution or a highly technological solution. What we need is a solution, again, as we said earlier, that's so old that it's new. We need to just simply keep living roots in the ground with a lot of diversity and make sure that we have livestock moving across foraging or grazing across that. That is a game changer. Well, And Ron, let's speak to something that everybody can agree with. This is like a self-serving thing because we all love good food and we like flavor. We like the way things are. And we touched upon this in the episode with you um, about Joyce Farms. Let's talk about flavor and what that actually means to somebody. If we're doing if we're, if we're doing regenerative agriculture properly, what does that mean for our livestock, and what does that mean for the product? Well, it's healthier livestock, and it's healthier products, it's healthier meat. But when you combine that with the old-world breeds and combine that with regenerative, my originally pursuit was flavor, produced naturally. 
Yeah. Annals used to have flavor. If you go back to some really old cookbooks around the turn of the century, century, the recipe for most meat and poultry was salt and pepper, not a barbecue sauce, not a salad dressing, not fat, sugar, and salt to put it on meat to make it taste like something. So, so my pursuit was natural flavor. And Alan has made me aware of something else, too. When you eat an heirloom to- tomato that was grown fresh in, in a garden or one that was commercially <coughs> produced that you buy in a grocery store or commercially produced poultry versus a heritage breed uh, poultry uh, that's grown regeneratively, flavor translates to nutritional value. Uh, more nutritionally dense food has a better flavor. So as we were going along doing this, my pursuit of flavor led me to healthier animals, healthier meat and poultry for people. And, oh, by the way, it just happened to be good for the environment, the soil, and the atmosphere. Because as Alan was talking, through photosynthesis, these plants are actually pulling CO2 out of the air and putting carbon back in the ground, which will – would and has the ability, and Alan can go into this more detail, but we actually have the ability through farming to reverse global warming or, or climate change. Yeah, just to, to pick up on that real quick, uh, through a practice that we call adaptive grazing, which is a regenerative form of grazing, it's basically mimicking the way that the wild ruminants used to move across the landscape in our prairies and grasslands and savannas. Um, so we can replicate that. We call it biomimicry and ecomimicry, but we can replicate that by using our domesticated ruminants. And what we're finding is that we can sequester for every acre as much as seven tons of carbon per year per acre. And that just means simply moving uh, uh, ruminants like your, your cattle your your whatever your goats or whatever just yep. moving them from one spot to the next periodically just letting them roam well we're we're moving every day just like the wild ruminants did because the wild ruminants literally moved every single day you know they were never grazing in the exact same location right. the two days is, in a row why did they do that because there wasn't any food there anymore. So they had to go to the next place to find the food, right? And predators. And predators. But right. I mean, but the point was, like, they're like, well, we exhausted this area, so let's go to that area and that that neighborhood to get more food. It only makes sense that yep. that's why they're moving around. That's why we need to – you can't just keep eating. You can't be fishing in the same hole all day long. Exactly. And, and one of the things that we're doing is we actually put out uh, these towers that are called flux towers, but – very simply, what they do is they just simply monitor greenhouse gas emissions every day and, and on a real-time basis. So you get this data streaming in 24-7. Literally every every minute, every second of the day, we've got this data streaming in. And what we have found is that in a single 24-hour period of grazing, that this grazing impact can sequester 0.218 tons of carbon per hectare. Now, if we think about that on magnitude, that we can solve all the greenhouse gas issues very, very rapidly. We will no longer have carbon issues. We will no longer have methane issues, all of these types of things, if we utilize livestock the way that the wild ruminants once roamed the face of this earth. And that... Sorry to oversimplify, but I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. So that change because we started feeding our ruminants 
corn and of the like of other stuff as opposed to just letting them graze? And feedlots, putting a lot of animals putting, in a small, concentrated area of space. Okay, got it. Yeah, in, instead of having them out on the land where they where they belong, right, uh, and where they can do their work, their job, you know, we have we have started placing many of our livestock into, you know, what are called CAFOs or concentrated animal feeding operations, and uh, and we've taken them off the land, and we we've taken away that ability, and and instead on the land we said okay. We've got to take all these acres, and we're wasting acres by having livestock graze them. So we've got to grow crops on those acres. And those crops in and of themselves cannot sequester even a quarter of the amount of carbon that can be sequestered when you have the symbiotic, the combined effect of plants plus something foraging and grazing those plants. Again, that's the way... Everything evolved yeah. globally, you know, on as far as land-based production, and and that's where we have to move back to if we want to rebuild what we used to have. So I want to put this in a scenario that I can really understand. So journey with me into a alternate universe, a comparative universe. Okay, <laughs> uh, let's say in our living world today, we have a farmer that is doing everything responsibly that he or she knows they're not plowing they're not spreading or uh, they're not spraying anything uh, unnatural um, and maybe they're not employing all the techniques but they're doing they're they're responsibly farming versus let's say somebody that's never that's lived in this universe that's never been mechanized that just knows that just respects the land and does does what they do what would that land in the alternate universe look like if it's just natural, but but maybe they don't know all the techniques about how the soil goes and it just naturally occurs, but they too are respecting of the land? Does that what what? How would those two different? Would they parallel each other alike, or would they grow wildly different? No, if if the practices are very similar, they would be very parallel. Okay. In in their appearance, and that's because life creates life. You know that that's the most important thing to remember. If if we're if we're implementing practices on our farms that encourage life and build life, again starting with that microbial life beneath the soil surface, then all life above the soil surface will thrive. And this is what we're finding on our own farms and on the farms of clients all over the world is that if we start rebuilding and repairing the soil life first, then what we see next is that we see earthworms and all kinds of soil level insects starting to thrive and coming back. And that includes pollinators. You know, and right now we have a significant issue with, with, a lack of pollinators. Lack of bees and everybody. Yeah. I'll, exactly. Yeah. So then what happens? So it's all a food web, right? So what happens after that is that then birds and spiders and all of these predators start moving in because now I've got all of these insects and earthworms and everything else that is food for them. Mm-hmm. So they start returning in droves. And then that stimulates greater plant species diversity. So I have this entire array of plants that are growing and producing seed and flowers and all of that that becomes food 
for a multiplicity of wildlife and our pollinators, and then all of your mammals and everything else moves in. But wait a minute. If we keep doing this, then we're going to end up with like super like, – like saber-toothed tigers because like, you know, it's going to evolve to the level – like we're going to get dinosaurs back. Yeah. These crazy – I'm just kidding. But I'm saying wouldn't that be great if we actually could uh, get to the point where the, our biggest problem is we have too much wildlife. We have too much uh, plant life. We have too much – we're just engulfed in all that. And the nice part that you say, the positive part that you say is that it is possible. And it's not possible for four generations down the line. It's possible now. Like we could start making changes in one season of growth. Like yes. one, one vintage of wine, we could ex- actually see change. And that is something that is inspiring to anyone because we are still Americans and we like now, now, now. So this could be now if we would if we wanted it to be. Well, many farmers and ranchers, what they're discovering and the reason that we have uh, what is now becoming an overwhelming number that are that are that are trying to implement regenerative farming practices is that within and we we have some of our own farmers with that that supply Joyce Farms that are doing this, and what they are discovering is that within three to five years they have totally transformed their farms. And they have not only transformed their farms, but they have transformed their financial situation and their quality of life has gone way up. So everything that was a negative to them before has become a positive. And I'll give you a very specific example. Adam Grady, who was here for your first podcast, you know, Adam, in just his second year of regenerative farming, cut his input costs by $161,000 a year. Wow. Now think about the economic impact that he just had on not only on his family, but the rural economy around him because yeah. now he has a lot more dollars to turn over in that rural economy. It's like, yeah, that's what happens. Like you start seeing the improvement. The grass is greener on your neighbor's lawn. Maybe you should start practicing how your neighbor is growing his grass. One of the biggest surprises that I've had, and I've been personally involved with Adam's transformation, his neighbors are seeing this, but they are still too stubborn to make the changes. It's amazing to me. I thought the same thing. I said, Adam, your neighbors must be calling you and, and coming by and talking to you, and they must be making this change too. And he said, no, they're not. Yeah, that's my question. What 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 are some of the naysayers and their obstacles, especially after meeting you or seeing? I mean, what 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 is not convincing about it? Well, what we have found, and again, remember, so we've been doing this a while now, and and we've encountered about every objection that you can possibly encounter, and the the typical path down this road happens like this. You know, most marketing agencies will tell you that it takes a minimum of of six to eight impressions, you know, commercials, advertisements, whatever, before somebody acts on a new product Mm. or a new service, right? So they have to have multiple exposures. They're not going to buy something the very first time they see an ad for something. Sure. They have to have multiple exposures before they act. Farmers are no different here. So the first time they see something positive happening with, like, Adam's farm or somebody else's farm that is doing this, they're going to make no mistake about it. They notice it, and they're paying attention, but they're still being stubborn. 
it doesn't sink in. I mean, no. like, listeners at home, you're going to have to listen to this episode six more times. <laughs> yeah, for you to. And, truly and my get farm it. is different. My farm is not like Adams, so it probably right. wouldn't work on my farm. Yeah, it doesn't work. But no, it's farming. It's so with the positivity of being able to do this right now, and let's let's just say that through the through the majesty of the NCFMB podcast and and who are listening, but really just people that are listening. To to you guys and to, and to other like minded folks, uh, I do see uh, a progression moving forward. But what uh, Doctor Williams you said in the very beginning is that you also do you go all over the world and you try to help out other people. Mm-hmm. I feel p- pessimistic every time I see someone that uh, you know drives a Prius and recycles <laughs> every day and composts. Like that's great for you, hippie person that doesn't use deodorant and all. I get it. You're saving the world. But there are also three billion people in another country that aren't even lifting a hand to do these things. So maybe it's all for nothing. So wh- what do you say to the pessimist in me that says that, like, who cares how much we're trying to work here if the rest of the world isn't going to keep up? Uh, well, I'd like to answer that first, and then we'll get uh, Alan's reaction. But the first thing I would say is we don't need politicians to solve this problem because they've rarely solved a problem. And I think part of it is if they did solve a problem, what would they run on after that? But <laughs> but as we get the information out about regenerative, more and more people know about it. And, and Dr. Williams is right. The consumer votes every day with their pocketbook. But when you think about years ago and what's changed, yes, we're driving more vehicles. Yes, we're burning more fossil fuels. But another thing that's happened, and this has been proven through science, and and Dr. Williams has the data, we used to have prairies. We had prairies and animals everywhere. There were bison and elk roaming right around this building years ago and lots of grasslands. So we had the grass. We had the the photosynthesis from the, uh, the plants taking carbon dioxide, we weren't producing as much then, but taking it out, putting carbon back in in the ground and cleaning the air. We know scientifically that works. So you eliminate the animals and you eliminate the grassland, and then you start burning the fossil fuels. Uh, Dr. Williams has some information on, I forgot how many farms around the world, but a very small percentage of farms converting to regenerative agriculture would completely eliminate all the CO2 that we put in the air every day. Wow. Yeah, it, it's not a big a number as you may think. And uh, basically, if we get just 10% of the farms globally doing this, we have totally changed the climate question. 10%. Just 10%. <laughs> uh, yeah. Maybe, I mean, this is marketing, right? Everything comes down to marketing. It's like mm-hmm. how people... What we're discussing right now is important stuff, and we're only going to go out to a few thousand listeners, hopefully. Maybe, you know, and maybe people even listening will share this with other people to listen. But the point is, it's trying to get the word out. And I think because of politics, there are certain catchphrases that are big no nos right now. We've already said them right now climate change, global warming. These are things that politicians have stood on a platform and said, like, I'm going to fight this. There's no proof that this is, and there's this doesn't really matter what your politics are on this. If we could start just talking about regenerative agriculture will help you make money and make your food taste better. And, and healthier. And, and, and we'll save the planet. No, just by d- the way. No, no, that's the thing. Don't even mention saving the planet. <laughs> Don't talk about it. Talk about it in a selfish way. Talk about it in, if you do this, you will make money and your food will taste better. Just by the way, oh yeah, oops, we also fixed the world. So I, I really genuinely think the mission is to not 
fight the battles that everyone else is trying to fight against. It's right. the brunch bill, right? We wanted to be able to drink alcohol two hours earlier on Sundays. Right. That wasn't really what the bill was about. Our distillers now get to sell five bottles of liquor at their distilleries instead of one. That's what you voted on, right. everybody. That's what's happening. That was a positive for most people. I don't see the big negative there. But really, that's what we got to do. We've got to play three-card Monty with all of these people and with the, with society so that we can actually make things happen. Right. It's like telling a really shallow guy that, like, oh, take this pill uh, and your penis will get bigger. You'll have more chicks and and, uh, and more money. But really, intent, it, what that is, it's like a holistic vitamin that's making your insides better, and thus everything else is performing better, essentially. <laughs> well, you well, just got to sell the sexy. <laughs> <laughs> what pillows are you taking? <laughs> <laughs> let's, it, actually, let's speak to that, because Dr. Alan Williams is yoked. <laughs> yeah. We can yeah, how do you find it. time to, uh, to to do all the weight training on top of all this regenerative farming? Well, well, I and I, I actually the reason yeah. I brought it up, like you're in really good shape, Doctor Williams, and I look at it like you're probably treating your uh, your sessions in the gym probably like the way you expect your farmer to treat his soil. Everyone knows that if you do leg day all day long, which no one does because everyone <laughs> wants the big arms, if you do arm day all the time. Your legs are going to look wimpy and weak, and also your biceps are going to get accustomed to those curls, and they're not going to look the same way. So you got to change it up a little bit. You know, all of those, all those CrossFit guys are going to say, do like forty-five different types of muscle or uh, lifts on your arms to actually get the definition. So uh, you you do literally practice what you preach because you can tell, like you're in, you're fit. It's diversity, right? Right. It, so exactly what you said. It, just like if. If you want to be fit, you've got to have a diversity in your exercise. I often tell people that, you know, what we've been doing in farming, and I compare it to uh, an, an elite athlete. You know, if, if you want to be an elite athlete and compete at the highest levels for championships, gold medals, whatever, you're not going to do the same exercise routine at the same intensity and duration day in and day out. If you do, you will never reach elite status. As a matter of fact, you'll never even reach average status. Yeah. Yeah, and, and eventually you'll plateau, and then you'll start to digress because your body and mind says, huh, I'm used to this. This is nothing new. So our soils, we're biology. Our soils and everything that we're working with as farmers is biology. Mm-hmm. And and they're the, we have to think about them in that exact same way. If I do the exact same thing in my farming practices over and over again, then we're going to plateau. All of my biology on my farm is going to plateau, and then it's going to start going backwards, just like our bodies will. So we've got to be highly diverse, introduce diversity, just like diversity and exercise is critically important to continue to make progress. Diversity in what we do on our farms is just as important. I'd like to make one more comment, too, because I'm alarmed by the messaging we're getting from politicians to solve the uh, the problem, uh, the earth problem. And one of them is quit eating animals. We've got to get rid of cows. Hmm. Cows are bad. <laughs> but there's a, I'm not sure who wrote the book or brought the subject up, but it was called, It's Not the Cow, It's the How. Yeah. So since cows are bad, we've got to get rid of them. You've got to give up your hamburger. Uh, you've got to quit eating beef. You've got to quit eating meat. Well, if you've listened, what you understand is animals properly grown, are the solution to the climate problem. 
not it, contributing to it, they are the solution. You and you have politicians that want to get rid of them. You answered a question I was going to make light of, but it's actually true. I was going to say, Ron, as an owner of a farm that sells meat, what do you say to all those vegans that don't want to eat meat You know, going through? It's the diversity of eating, right? Like if you're not eating even animal fats and animal meat, you could potentially be missing out on what your body may need. I know everybody that's vegan just rolled their eyes while they were driving right now, especially my buddy who's in the room right next to us, Mike. Uh, but I think what we're saying is you just got to have like a full 360 degree view of life and be completely balanced in as much as you can at all times and in basically everything that you do. Balance is the key. I've talked to a lot of vegetarians and vegans, and I think they made that decision. And this seems strange, maybe come, coming from a meat producer, but they had valid reasons for making that decision. And a lot of them did it because of the animal welfare. So when you look at animals that are grown confined in an industrial situation, cattle in a feedlot, I can almost see their point. When you look at chickens that are packed uh, with less than one square foot of space in a house with artificial lighting and and forced ventilation uh, in such crowded conditions and grown in six weeks, uh, really pushed to grow fast, I can see the, the, uh, the argument for the animal welfare. When you look at what it does to the environment, I can see the argument for the environmental concern. But meat and poultry grown regeneratively takes care of all of that. Right. But you also, it, it does go back to the consumer makes the choice. But it's not only the consumer. I would just argue with you there because I, I've actually had this conversation from a wine sales perspective that in somewhat as the distributor of wine, we are somewhat the key holders into the choice that the consumer gets. Yeah. And it's a tiered system where also the, the purchasers of the grocery stores are also making a choice as well. So it, it's, 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 a, it's, it's right. many more tiers people, and many levels to it. More people are watching, say, CBS than, 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 you know, National Geographic. So it's the responsibility of the programming of what shows are on CBS. That's what people are going to be watching. So it's the same parallel as what the distributors are going to sell. That's what we're going to buy. Yeah. So we got to keep going up the chain, too. It's not just what the farmers are going to produce. The farmers are going to grow what the distributors are going to purchase right. to then sell to the, to right. the consumers. So there is a huge part of this whole chain and that that tends to be like the supermarkets the grocery stores where we've talked about it before but tomatoes have been the same price for like 80 years and that's weird everything else went up but we keep squashing the farmers down because the the you know whole foods and and Publix and whatever want to keep the price what they want their profit margins to be at so they they tell the distributor it's going to be this, and the distributor's like, "All right, I guess I'll I'll lose a few dollars here." Oh, I know what! I'll just I'll just take it out of the pay I'm going to give to the farmer, and the farmer has no way to do it. Or they're going to find the farmer that can that can produce more, higher yields, which is not being environmentally responsible. Yeah, the, the farmer that is doing it ethically loses because it's economics, right. and they're like, "Great, I got it. Well, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do whatever you want for yeah. a dollar," you know. And, that's not right. So we, we, there has to be a check and balance system. Maybe that's where the politicians can come in, because if you actually set laws that pro, pro, prohibit uh, some sort of, com, I don't know, competitive, like, like you have to do ethical farming. How about that? And then that way everyone has an even playing field. Well, well, as a comparison point, in 1969, 38 cents of every food dollar went back to the U.S. farmer. Today, the U.S. farmer 
gets less than eight cents of every wow. food dollar. So we have lost that much. Thirty cents lost. A thirty cents loss. Wow. In Which, just since nineteen sixty. Again, you compound that to inflation yeah. and, and the amount of money that is. That's an astounding number. It it is, and and if we go back to looking at you know plant production for the eating of plants versus livestock production for the pr- production of proteins, then there is no ecosystem on the face of the earth, guys, that is devoid of some type of animal life. It, you can't have a fully functioning ecosystem otherwise. So if we think that, okay, we need to get rid of all protein production and produce only plants and eat the fruit of those plants, then we have just created a world full of incomplete, non-intact ecosystems. We have just significantly altered our ecosystems globally. And Did you know that, fun fact, uh, New Zealand does not have any indigenous mammals? New Zealand is the one place in the world where all life was either uh, botany or you know fl- flowers and, and plants and birds. And that the only reason why there are horses or anything else that are were all brought over by humans. That's the one uh, one area. Little fun fact, just let you know. But but it but it had birds. It had birds. Okay. So they, it, they, they were it, able to come in. Yeah, it, exactly. Exactly. It had birds, and and those birds had a profound impact. If over the over the development, the ecological development of New Zealand, if you had taken those birds out of that equation, then it would have been very different, and it would have been significantly desertified because you can't have again fully functioning ecosystems without some type of animal life which would include birds yeah in 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 that equation yeah and who knows what nature would have done like you talked about earlier saber-toothed tigers or other i mean eventually if life is allowed to create and keep going right i mean eventually there would probably be other species i would think uh Okay, I have so many things to get to, and I think we're running long on time, but we, ha- we, ha- we probably won't even get to genetics and epigenetics today, so we're, maybe you'll come back one day or we can have you on the pod again. But um, I, we were talking about the U.S. global impact, mm-hmm. um, and I'm wondering, also as a comparison, what is it like, say, in China? Uh, and and have you have you ventured over there and studied that and 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 do they farm? You said the Amer- you know Americanized things. Do they farm that way? Do they use herbicides and pesticides? Oh yes, very much so. Uh, unfortunately, you know China has become heavily Americanized in in their agricultural production, and they are making. They they don't even have the regulations that we have over right. here mm. in in terms of the restriction of use of a lot of these chemicals. So they're using them basically ad ad libitum, you know, at will. And so they are significantly overusing. They they have created enormous environmental problems in in their country. The soils uh, are laden with toxins. Their rivers, all of their waterways are in horrendous shape. And, it, and as you know, you know they, they have created a lot of uh, non-point sources of pollution that, that have become an, uh, quite an issue. And they How have does even, their population keep growing in astounding numbers then? Well, actually, their, their population growth is 
declining. has actually started declining. And if you look at fertility issues now in China, uh, human fertility issues are skyrocketing. By the way, they are here in the U.S. as well. And I think it's interesting that in China, the Chinese people know this. Yeah. And I've asked some producers, meat and poultry producers in the U.S., how is it that you're able to export and sell the American meat and poultry in China when it costs so much more to produce here than it can be produced in China? And the answer, I haven't verified this, don't know if it's right or wrong, but it sounds to make sense to me, that the average person in China knows what's going on in China. And as they move up the, uh, the ladder, uh, of economical success and can afford better food, they will not purchase Chinese produced food. They uh, will pay more for American food because they know what's in their food. Actually, and I know for a fact that North Carolina pork, which is, let's just say, probably the best pork you can find in the country, is now being exported to yeah. China. Uh, there's a was a whole series we almost we actually almost made it to China uh, on the NCFB podcast to talk about this very issue and it still could be something that we get involved with uh, because uh, North Carolina agriculture uh, signed a huge deal and we're we're shipping our heritage raised pork to China not not to like repackage and sell back to us but to sell to them because they know that American pork and more importantly North Carolina pork is the best you can find and safer. Right, and so yeah, so the like the elite, the economic elite in China is well aware of it, and they're buying it. That's like Matt, what we were talking about with Kobe beef, right? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I wanted to ask. That was an, another question: Is Kobe beef? We've been taught all these years is like the elite of beef, but then Max and I were talking about it. And, well, aren't they fed beer and it's like milk and vodka or something like that? I don't even yeah. know if all these things are and true. They're just basically raised to maximize that fat content for the beef. So. What's the deal with Kobe? Yeah, well, true Kobe beef, you know, is um, you know very strictly regulated and is only produced in in one area right. of of Japan. But uh, yes, these are cattle that are long fed. As a matter of fact, many of these cattle are fed three to four times the length of time that the average steer is in a U.S. feedlot. Uh, so they're they, they're not grazing. No, okay. no, they they are basically they're they're in stalls, and yeah, they rarely even touch the ground. They, right, they they don't want them moving a lot because they want them to continue to stack on fat and yeah. and deposit this marbling. Think of the humans in the movie uh, Wall E that are floating around and they just become totally fat and their bones degenerate. And they're just, they're now just like pretty soft. Pretty good comparison. Yeah, fat content. Oh, we'd be delicious. Well, you need to know, though, that the Japanese do not approach eating a Kobe beef like we do. Right. You would never cut a 10-ounce steak. No, it's a bite, right? It's it's too rich, and there's too much fat. So, yes, you eat small slivers of it, cut very thin, kind of like an Iberico pork, uh, a ham. Yeah. That's something, yeah, we, we haven't grasped that whole thing of just tasting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, but, we want to mound it. But in this scenario, then, this is not really responsible farming or raising of animals. Yeah, there's no way you're going to, quote, go global with that, and there's no way you're going to, quote, feed the world, you know, with, right. with Kobe beef. Uh, That's it, why it's it, a delicacy. It's just, yeah, it's a delicacy. It's just not very practical at all to, to do on any kind of scalable basis. Okay. So somebody that's listening to this, uh, like uh, Adam Grady, 
that maybe you didn't get in contact with and they're a farmer, they have their small farms. What, what do you encourage them to do to start to like, what are steps, tangible things that they can start immediately doing to help regenerative farming? Well, I'll tell you one of the very first things that we do to help illustrate to them the current status of their farm and their soil. And, and now this really involves some very high technology. We take a shovel. <laughs> and uh, it we call it the shovel test. So very low tech, right? Yeah. We just simply take a shovel out to their field. And, and whether you realize it or not, most farmers and ranchers have never done this. Mm. They, it actually totally surprises them when we do this. So we step foot on their farms. We're, you know, they bring us in to teach us how to farm regeneratively, and I step out of my truck with a shovel. Right. And they're like, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> you know, they're expecting some kind of expensive equipment, and we're going to run some fancy test and all of this. And all I do is I just simply dig in their soil and turn it over and show them what their soil looks like. They've never really paid attention to that. And we look at what we call soil aggregates, and that's just all of these uh, particles of soil stuck together so it looks like a highly aggregated soil looks like black cottage cheese. Mm. Okay, That's what it should look yeah. like, all of those pore spaces. So water can infiltrate and, and earthworms can move through the soil and microbes can move through the soil. So we show them what that looks like. And then the next thing that we do, and this is highly technical as well, we tell them, smell the aroma of the soil because highly biologically active soil, really healthy soil, has this deep, rich, earthy aroma to it Mm -hmm. that is just absolutely stimulating and incredibly pleasant. And and so that's the very first thing that we do. Hmm. And that's undeniable. That's your own soil on your own farm. You cannot deny what you're seeing and smelling yourself. That's always the beginning of the journey because then they have to say, oh, wow, I've got problems. Mm. My soil is not very healthy. How do I change this? And and so from that point forward, what we do is – Basically, there's, and I'll just run through them super quick, but there's what we call the five principles of soil health. Number one is quit all the plowing. Hmm. Okay, pretty simple. Mm -hmm. Minimal disturbance in your soil. Number two is keep living roots in the soil as long as possible throughout the year. Then diversity. You want as much plant and insect and animal life diversity as you can possibly encourage in that soil. Number four, keep living roots in the soil year-round. And number five, animal integration. So bring back the livestock so that they can interact with everything else in that ecosystem. So they're very simple principles, just five principles, and we teach them how to use those principles to complete root regenerate their farms and i'm going to answer your question a little bit hold on one second i feel like i missed one i have no plowing i have diversity living living roots all year round and animal integration but there's one more i'm missing oh the chemicals uh, elimination of chemicals and yeah eliminate eliminate uh chemical got it just in synthetic 
use or at least reduce, right? Sorry. I wanted to put a plug in for Dr. Williams because when you said how do farmers learn more about this, I would suggest they go to his website, uh, a group that he put together, Soil Academy, and I think it's Uh, soilacademy.com. Soilhealthacademy.org, right. If they want to learn more about how to participate in this, they can just simply go to soilhealthacademy.org. And, uh, and, and one of the things that we do, they, you know, farmers have to learn how to do this. So we teach schools that we call academies that are very practical, very hands-on, and it allows them to gain a much higher level of understanding. And then, but the other important thing about, about doing that, though, Remember earlier that I said that one of the principal reasons they're not making these changes is because of the peer pressure? Mm-hmm. Well, what we do when they come to our academies and participate in those, then we forge for them a network of other farmers and ranchers who are doing this so that they then have that critical support group that they don't have back home. Isn't that crazy? It's like, you know, like you're an outlier in community because you're trying to farm responsibility. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're at the end of here. I, I, I do want to mention in the office, right, in the studio, you also, you had your son. You have your son here. Yes. It, it, it's 19 years later. See, he's, he's a 19-year-old boy, man. Does he, uh, what does he think about his pops doing all this? Does he buy in or is he like, sorry, Dad, I'm going to Jack in the Box? No, he's actually very interested in this. And, uh, and you know, I've been – I haven't pushed him to do that. You know, it's always been his own decision, but uh, but this is what he wants to do with his life. He wants to, you know, be fully all in. You know, as Dabo Swinney from Clemson would say, all in, right? Yeah. He wants to be all in. <laughs> In regenerative agriculture. Hey, John Gruden and Mike Mayock were all in on Clemson. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, the Raiders are, are going to look like <laughs> Clemson Part Two. So uh, that's my team, by the way. But well, isn't that great that you are uh, again practicing what you preach and you are also uh, growing a new crop that's uh, right. of people that understand yes. this? And uh, you know, Matt and I, we want to be helpful with this as well. And hopefully, just by having you on our show, I hope this has reached some people. I would love for people to. Uh, listeners of the show, especially farmers, people that really could make a, a real impact, send us an email, send us a Instagram post. Let's let us know that you're doing something about it, and we will help promote you as much as possible too. Because everybody knowing about this is really the only way that we will find a solution. Yeah, guys, this is not an insurmountable mission. This is 10% of the farms in the world. That seems actually attainable, really. It's doable. You know, and, and I even think, uh, just as a side note for your for your individuals, it was so ironic this morning. Uh, I This morning I heard a drum roll. No, uh, I was doing, you know, my research and I was watching your uh, talk on the, on the um, grass-fed exchange. And as we're doing that, and um, I have mosquito joe coming to my door and i didn't you know i didn't know but my wife had organized because she's always you know with these mosquitoes and just ironically as i told you i just had my second son and i'm thinking my children are playing in that backyard and we had just planted some potatoes and asparagus and they're starting to sprout and i see this and then it was just so ironic because i'm thinking now what the heck is going to happen with that stuff it makes me mad but that's for another conversation well for more information and this is not this is not of course, I'm always selling Joyce Farms and our products, but we sure. do have a lot of educational 
uh, information about yeah. regenerative on our website. And we continually put videos on, some that are done by Allen, some that are done by Kiss the Ground organization out in California. And there's a great series that Allen was involved in called uh, Soil Carbon Cowboys. So there's a lot of information people can get yeah. just researching on our website. Um, that does bring up one last question, though. For those pests and insects and bugs that bother us, I mean, what do we do? Do we just learn how to live with them? Like, what, 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 are, what are things that we do around if we're farmers and working in, in the farm? Well, we need Jonathan to call in and do a segment for you. Yeah, Jonathan Lundgren. But the, 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 the simple answer to that is we're the creators of that problem. The reason that we have so many pests hmm. bothering us is because we have destroyed many of the beneficial insects that prey on them. Mm. And if we can, again, be regenerative in our practices, that's going to benefit everybody. You'll, you'll have fewer mosquitoes and, and, and other pests, ticks, all of these other things that, that bother us. You know, there are natural controls for all of those that keep, them, keep their population in check. Mm. The problem is, is that every time you spray something to get rid of one thing, there are no target organism-specific pesticides out there. Everyone that we spray kills not just the target pest, but many of the beneficials that would have preyed on those pests. Right. But get started with regenerative agriculture, and your, your small micro-community that you're creating will balance out. Exactly. You're not going to have uh, billions of mosquitoes all over the place because you will also uh, bring in the, the predators for those mosquitoes, and everything will kind of balance it out. So the answer is just do what we've been talking about this entire damn episode. Get into regenerative agriculture. Check it out. Go to the websites. Go to soilhealthacademy.org. Go to joycefarms.com. In, inspire yourself. Get inspired. I'm inspired. I don't even have a farm, but you know what? I'm going to just start... I'm just going to start growing something right now. But you yeah. do eat. <laughs> you yeah. do eat. Yeah. Yeah. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. I really oh, appreciate your you. time. Thank you for having us. And uh, I did want to also let you know that we have this unbelievable cake from our partners at Bestow Baked Goods, which is vanilla on the outside, chocolate on the inside. I think this is regenerative wow. right in regenerative its Regenerative cake. You know, I'm not really a dessert eater, and I think I'm going to enjoy it. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, so also, if you're out there, go to... Uh, Go visit the folks, uh, Heather and Kyle Sutton, over at Bestow Baked Goods. They're in Fuquay Verena right now, but will soon be opening in Holly Springs right next to Triangle Wine Company in Holly Springs. Matt's in the neck of the woods. Yeah. Matt? Everybody, farm regeneratively, and you will eat and drink and live very merrily. Thank you for listening to the North Carolina Food and Beverage Podcast. By rating us online, you're helping others to discover our show. The magic of SEO puts the salt on our rim. Follow us on all platforms at NCFBPod.